Hello, my name is Ben Reed. I am the Title IX and ADA coordinator here on campus, as well as the editor for the Tap Talk podcast. A quick note before the show gets started, we have an opportunity for you to get your voice heard here on the podcast. Uh, all you need to do is stick around till the end of the episode, and uh, I'll fill you in on all the details, but it'll be worth it. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Tep Talk, episode two. Thank you for being here and listening and going on this ride with us. My name's Justin Erickson. I'm here with my illustrious co-hosts, Carmen Green and Kumbi Ajaboye. Uh, today we're here on the 19th of November in the longest single year in recorded history, 2020. And so I just want to ask you two, how are you feeling today? Carmen? Um, that's a good way of putting it. I'm, I'm doing all right today. I think um, since the election, I've been at the crossroads of like, Hope, deliriously happy, critically thinking, skepticism, scrutiny, and then back to relief and hope. So it's a whole, it's a whole basket of emotions. <laughs> How about you, Kumbi? Absolutely. I think Carmen took the words right out of my mouth to say that, yes, it's a, it's a mixed bag of feelings. And I think that it fluctuates as the day progresses or as different things happen from, you know, the excitement and hope to just um, sometimes like the low lows. I feel like those emotions, like it's not a plateau of just being okay, but sometimes fluctuating between really high highs, okay, and um, some low lows, thinking about the world around us right now. So yes. Yeah, comment. yeah, yeah. It's it's like a roller coaster. It's like whiplash. I'm all over the place. You know, I go from hope to just paralyzing terror. Um, but yeah, it's been an interesting couple of weeks. I remember watching the uh, the speech from Kamala Harris on uh, I can't remember what day it was because the election drug out for a few days. But I I watched it with my younger daughter Kaya and because uh, I wanted to tell her about it someday. You know, I was hoping that speech from Kamala Harris would be a turning point for gender equity. And so Kaya's three and a half and she kept saying, I'm bored, dad, this is boring. But she was just saying that she was watching with this rapt attention. And so something about that, I want to feel like was a turning point was, was a moment that I can talk to her about in the future. Cause even though she said she was bored, she was, uh, she was locked on that screen. Um, anyway, before we, uh, before we get into our, our main content today, we've got a great interview coming up. We wanted to acknowledge the land we're on, um, especially with Thanksgiving coming up next Thursday. So we acknowledge that we're on the traditional and unceded territories of the Lummi and Nooksack people, specifically where we are. We encourage you to investigate whose land you're on, wherever you're listening to this. Um, we've been hearing a lot lately about land acknowledgements and how without any action attached to them, they can be seen as performative and just words. And that critique has a lot of validity, I think, to it. So in addition to acknowledging the stolen land we're on today, I'd like to suggest some action with that. And some actions could be including committing to teaching true local history in education, both here and wherever you are. And with Thanksgiving coming up, we could commit to talking about the fact that Thanksgiving is 
essentially celebrating genocide and land theft. Um, so we could talk without about talk about that with our families around our lonely pandemic uh, turkey day tables, or maybe you can FaceTime family and talk about that since we're all basically sheltering in place this Thanksgiving. Or better yet, we could make Thanksgiving an official day of atonement, but maybe that's a conversation for a future time, hopefully not too far in the future. Uh, anyways, today we're continuing our theme of brilliant change-making inspirational women who are famous enough to go by a one-letter nickname. Our co-host, of course, is the amazing Dr. K. Kumbi. And last episode, we got some inspirational parting words of wisdom from Dr. J, Janice Velasquez-Farmer. And today we're featuring Dr. X, otherwise known as Dr. Zan Nieder, the Director of Teaching and Learning at Whatcom, an expert on anti-racism, education, and just generally an expert on keeping it real. Absolutely. Um, Dr. X is amazing. And it's important um, that we would like the listeners to know that we talked to Zan a few weeks ago before the election. Um, and it's important to keep that in mind as you're listening. Um, it's really important and safe to say that the conversation would have sounded differently. You know, just because the election, um, it, uh, there is a new figurehead and a new president um, doesn't mean that you know, the issues that we talked about and discussed are not still real, um, pop, like pulsating, like experiences um, that are still happening um, and will continue to happen. So we will always continue talking about equity and anti-racism um, as it relates to our world, our college, the grand scheme of things. Um, and also just with a reminder that people are just figureheads in a larger movement. And people are a symptom of a larger disease. And fixing, I always like to say that fixing centuries old like problems of racism um, doesn't end with just one person becoming president or one person um, getting elected. Um, but we, we have to continue to engage in that work. Um, we might feel a little bit better now that we know like where we are, you know, than, than what, where we were a few weeks ago or not. Um, but the fact remains that it's a long, the long match has barely even begun and we still have a lot of work to do. Um, I like to watch Leslie Nope, and when she got elected, she said, now that I've been elected, let's get to work. So that's kind of the feeling <laughs> that I'm coming in with, like, now that we have a new president and the election went, you know, a certain way, whether you, that was what, how you wanted to it to go or not, we still have to get to work. So let's get to work, welcome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that. I didn't know Leslie Nope was so prolific, but I stand corrected. Um, yeah, and right now as, as a college, we have a lot of opportunity to reimagine our world in ways that I think we can agree are very much needed. Um, last episode, we quoted Arundhati Roy writing about the pandemic as a portal. Um, and this time we want to highlight and echo uh, those words um, with a quote from the brilliant poet and activist Sonia Renee Taylor and her call for us to dream up more than um, a more just world than, than the one we live in now. Um, and so she says, I understand when people say they want to go back to normal, but Taylor says, we will not go back to normal. Normal never was. Our pre-corona existence was not normal other than we normalized greed, inequity, exhaustion, depletion, extraction, disconnection, confusion, rage, hoarding, 
hate and lack. We should not long to return, my friends. We are being given the opportunity to stitch a new garment, one that fits all of humanity and nature. Yeah, powerful words. And we had those words in mind and that idea of stitching a new garment for humanity in our minds back on September 1st of this year. Um, when Whatcom employees and staff will remember, uh, Whatcom decided to pause operations for three hours that day to let employees take time to reflect on social justice and anti-racism and, and build community with each other. And we'd started working on this podcast already on September 1st, so we took the opportunity to get some thoughts from some of our colleagues that day, including Dr. K, about how they were feeling and what kind of Whatcom and what kind of world they were dreaming of in that moment that wasn't going to be normal, that was going to be something new. What's your name? Guava Jordan. And what's your role at Wacom? Uh, I teach in adult basic education and also uh, help support faculty in equity and inclusion. So we're out here on September 1st, a little before noon, and Wacom's press pause today from 9 to noon for reflection on social justice and anti-racism and community. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Business as usual just doesn't apply. Um, and so to, to say that, just that recognition piece, and then every day is heavy. Um, and so one way to um, kind of cope with that is to get together with other people of color or other people um, who are aware of the current situation um, in that deeper way and talk with each other and relax and even and heal begin to heal so um and talk about the future okay what's your name my name is jackie and what's your role at wacom um i'm a division coordinator for um, division one which is academic resources and um health professions um gives us time to actually do some self-care and just be able to, to just share and, and rest for just at least a, a second. I hope that we're able to take advantage of this time, of this pause, um, not only just today, but, but actually able to get on the same pages on, on where we are as professionally, as well as um, just there's a lot more cultivation within the group of um, state people of color, as well as just as a school in general, just open up our communications. Um, we have an opportunity to, to grow on how we, how we teach as well as how we, how we are learning um, and then also how we're communicating and our, maybe our focuses and our targets are on non-traditional students or, or even beyond that. So I think it's a great opportunity to, to look at change, reflect as well as, as, well as grow right now. Kumbi Ajiboye. What do you do at Wacom? I am the Associate Director for Student Life and Development. And I think that in order to fully be able to engage in anti-racist work, anti-racist action, like self-care is really important. And intentional self-care is really important. So the fact that it's intentional, like makes it just so important and so meaningful to me. I think that my hope is one, like the continued engagement. I think that we've gotten to this point of awakening when it comes to actually trying to reflect on what ways are we contributing to this 
racist systems and how are we how are we perpetuating it and what can we do to change it and I think that like I said earlier like it's it's really difficult to continue in that self-reflection it can be because it takes work and you have to actually think about it and it's easier especially in a pandemic when you're wanting to hold on to some sense of normalcy that you just want to do things like try to do things how you've done it before and I think that we have such a wonderful opportunity to actually change the way we look at the world. Okay, what's your name? Rachel. And what do you do at Wacom? I work at registration department assistant. What do you hope or to see at Wacom in the coming year or years as far as equity and anti-racism and, and social justice work? More transparency everywhere. From Can you say a little more? More transparency everywhere from the top down. Uh, our departments are like we're all little islands working by ourselves and we think we're the only one and we don't know the connections and then finding out information and having to do the, the legwork by ourselves um, is is defeating, it's time consuming, um, and it, it creates more division than anything. So just knowing how things work, knowing who's who's doing the work, knowing what the rules are, who's, the, who's stopping it, why are they stopping it, um, when they say yes to something, okay, what's the timeline? When is it gonna happen? How is it gonna happen? Who do, who's the point of reference to go to when we need answers? What's your name? My name is Anthony Blackwell. What do you do at Wacom? I'm the program coordinator for intercultural services at the Intercultural Center, yeah. I think it's, it's, a, nice, it's a nice time to pause. I feel like it's much needed. Person that I present to like faculty, staff, and students is different than what I like. There's more that I have that behind that, and I feel like this pause is just kind of. It was it was refreshing. I ain't gonna lie. Like it was it was nice not having to like. I would say be sad. It's been been pretty joyful, but just like seeing people being around people and like just enjoying each other's company was. I think is it was a it's a good thing for myself for like healing purposes. So just have a couple hours of not necessarily focusing on a lot of the pain, just just enjoying. Not, yeah. I look forward to like just seeing the changes. I, I, I would like for there to be like a more swift and I think that's why I was thinking of the word like radical, like change. I would like to see this campus fully embrace diversity, equity and like inclusion as opposed to a lot of I feel like a lot of institutions kind of just say they have the text, they have the the pretty stuff, but to actually like do it, I feel like that's that's the difference from like someone coming on campus and feeling feeling safe or feeling like they belong or feeling like they're actually going to get something out of the institution. Which I feel like there's definitely been some some changes. Like I like the letters and then like the web page is like a I guess a good look, but um. What does that mean for the physical campus? And also, what does that mean in online spaces? And what does that mean on the campus, actually, now that I think about it? Because one day, people are going to be walking on this campus, uh, and it's not going to be online. So I, I just hope there's something. 
My name is Zan Nieder. I'm the Director for Teaching and Learning at Whatcom Community College. Okay, we're out here on September 1st and Whatcom has paused operations today for reflection on social justice and anti-racism. What do you think about that? How do you feel? I think, I feel like the, the response from the president, I feel like asking us to pause for a period of time and reflect and, and commune and, and do what we need to do for ourselves in this moment, given every, the weight of everything that's happening is really important. So I, I'm really appreciative for that, to be able to be in community with, with my people. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, do you have any goals, hopes, dreams for equity and anti-racist work at Wacom this year and in coming years? Well, my goal is to disrupt the racist systems wherever they are, um, and my hope is that we, we achieve full liberation for all people, um, but recognizing that that is not, that's one, a lifelong project and something that will extend well beyond my own lifetime, but I hope at FOTCOM that we can build, that we can be a leader in this movement, that we can, that we can change things significantly, not the incremental change that has happened over the last 20 or 40 years, but we can make some significant changes, some significant impacts for the students and the staff and the faculty that are, that have been experiencing varying levels of um, racism and micro and macro aggression. So my hope is that over this year, we're going to do some really amazing things and make a dent in it and we're just gonna continue. We're gonna gain momentum and we're gonna do some things and set the entire SPCT system like on fire because they're gonna be like, what is Whatcom doing? Oh my gosh. So that's my hope, that's my goal and that's what I'm that's what I'm pushing for, so. And listeners can't see this, but as Zan was saying that, the sun just burst out from behind the clouds and just bathed her in sunlight. And it was this glorious proclamation. It was amazing. Made me wish we were on video instead of audio. Cheers to that. Yay! So, after hearing what we just heard from Zan, um, we all knew that we really needed to hear from her more. So we invited her to come to the podcast for a longer chat, and we hope that you enjoy. grateful to have with us today for a longer conversation than that last clip you just heard, Whatcom Community College's first ever Director of Teaching and Learning, Dr. Zan Nieder. Zan, does anyone ever call you Dr. X? My students. Okay. <laughs> it's got a pretty pretty cool ring to it. Yeah. Um, and it, it fits with a theme we've had on this podcast so far because we had Dr. J last time and we've got Dr. K as a co-host. So Dr. X is on the podcast today, and Zan's been at Whatcom for a little over a year after coming to us from Washington State University, and we could not be happier to have her in the mix with us at Whatcom. I would say she's been a breath of fresh air, and she has, but I don't know if that cliche really does it justice. Can you help me out, Carmen? Yeah, I feel like um, breath of fresh air in terms of um, a refreshing amount of energy and badassery, but maybe more aligned with like a fiery inferno of knowledge and um, a hurricane, an earthquake, a force of nature, who's also somehow very nice and approachable and someone you could listen to for hours. Um, and I first met Zan during her group interview for Whatcom Community College. And then when I met her like during her first like week or so at work, I couldn't help but notice that we were both rocking snakeskin boots. So nice. I've been a fan of Zan since day one because of the boots. 
and then also <laughs> everything else I learned from her from that day <laughs> forward. And yeah, and also I would add like talking to Zan is just such an amazing person that you can just I know I've reached out to um just to chat um and um just talk when things get hard and also when things are great and there's no denying that she's had a major impact major major impact on Whatcom um both the individuals the anti-racist efforts the actions and fighting for equity on our campus and beyond and it feels like we're just getting started um and we're so thankful that you're here thank you so much for being here today um okay so Zan I have our first question for you how would you describe your first 12 plus months at Whatcom Community College? Oh my gosh. My first 12 plus months here have been amazing. The people on this campus are just beyond the pale amazing. I mean, I can't even, I can't even describe it. Like being at Whatcom is kind of like a big giant hug in a lot of ways for me. Spending time at WSU, which is a phenomenal school, but in Eastern Washington, which is kind of a space that is very conservative and hostile for a lot of marginalized folks. You're always in Eastern Washington, you're always battling uphill. And not that Western Washington doesn't have many of the same problems because we do. We just have much more population. And so those problems are a lot more minimized. And so being here, be one, being in Western Washington, it's it's my homecoming. So I'm in a in a climate, uh, you know, like the rain and the moss and everything in a climate that is really uh, comfortable for me because this is my home and where I grew up. But also being at Whatcom has been like a weird kind of homecoming. I was well, when I was when I, my first preschool was at a hippie commune out at Big Lake. So when I think about like or like Whatcom's origin story, I think, oh, my gosh, it's like this homecoming to me that I'm kind of returning back to my childhood roots of kind of some some hippiness, some love of nature, some love of humanity, the hope of humanity. And so it's been just really like just being here has been one of the best gifts that I ever gave myself, <laughs> like taking the risk to leave a place that I'd been working at and living for 25 years. To come to Whatcom was truly one of the most magical choices I could have made for myself. And so being here has been like, I can't even, amazing doesn't even begin to describe it. It's just a breath of fresh air. For the first time in 25 years, I, I've been deeply exhaling. I remember actually your, um, you did like the public forum interview in the Heiner Center, like auditorium space. And I remember that really distinctly because I was loving your like presence and your answers. And I was sitting near the front and I had major loud hiccups. So I was like, <laughs> I need to get out of here. I feel like this is super distracting. Um, but I, I remember that that like public forum conversation. I was really excited for you to be on board. And I'm pretty sure I can speak for everyone at Whatcom when I say I'm glad Carmen's hiccups didn't cause you to uh, not take the job. <laughs> um, we, we really appreciate you having you here and. And uh, do you remember, Zan, I ran into you on September 1st. Wacom did a pause for justice and kind of gave us as Wacom employees a few hours to reflect on social justice and Black Lives Matter and everything going on in the country. And we had a chance to talk that day and you talked about Wacom being a leader for change. Um, and I'd love to hear more about your thinking there. Can you say a little more about how you see Wacom potentially being a leader for change and what you envision? 
Oh, definitely. So first I'll say, you know, before I got here, all of you at Whatcom were already doing amazing equity work, you know, with the data dashboards that the air office utilizes and, and faculty have access to, to look at their, their equity gaps in their courses and across campus and in the programs, right? So that is already like light years ahead of where most institutions are at. Also, the fact that um, the equity work is diffused throughout campus, that it doesn't rest as one person's responsibility is also true, truly remarkable as we've seen nationwide, the like equity directors and VPs of equity and so on and so forth. Um, oftentimes they are scapegoated as being the not doing enough, right? And they're, they're supposed to do it all single-handedly without a staff, without a real robust budget. And so that Whatcom has many equity leaders across campus um, doing this work across, you know, student services, instruction, and uh, and across many different kind of intersections, right? We have um, Carrie doing um, work around disability we, and accessibility, and and many other people also doing that work, right? It's not just Carrie; it's it's owned by IT, it's owned by instructional design, it's owned by student services. We have Guava that's Guava and Catherine that have been doing a lot of the culturally responsive and culturally relevant pedagogy work. And that is also something that, you know, like Janice was doing that work. Um, I do that work. Justin, you do that work. Um, we have Signe that's doing UDL and Roe doing OER. And so all of these things, while maybe not specifically targeted toward um, racial equity, all contribute to racial equity and contribute to equity more broadly, right? And so when I think about Whatcom and I think about what I, what I was fortunate enough to walk into was this, this organization that was already moving, already in motion, doing the equity work across many different intersections of identity. And then I came in and I'm like, wow, this is amazing because, um, you know, coming from a larger institution, it's oftentimes this work is is siloed and in one place and it's hard to get the rest of the campus engaged in this work. That I think all of that it speaks to a model that other institutions could adopt and diffuse throughout their campus. But further, we're poised at this moment of what I have no other words, but to call it a, a point of inflection, this moment of inflection where we have two raging pandemics, you know, COVID, the virus and racism, the original pandemic of the land and um, the most regressive presidential regime in my lifetime. Um, so we have these three things occurring at once that I think has thrown us all into crisis, but it gives us a great moment to pause and to think about what do we want to be as we emerge from this moment? And um, what I see at Whatcom are a lot of people from um, the top leaders of campus to um, to the rest of us, right, that are that are really deeply engaged in this work and want to do what's best for the institution and for students and for the community. And I think we have some really great plans moving forward this year, uh, looking at some, some of the systemic barriers that our students of color face in coming to college, in succeeding in college, and persisting to graduation. Because of the human capital, I guess, the humans on campus that are invested in this work and doing 
the me work, sitting and thinking about the ways in which they resist and sustain white supremacy and the ways in which they can um, interrupt white supremacy. I think Whatcom is really poised to be a leader within the, within our system of community and technical colleges in Washington, but also nationally, because um, while a lot of institutions are shying away from this work or are not understanding this work, Whatcom is innovating, thinking of ways to um, to better evaluate the work that's going on and the impact on students, staff, and faculty, thinking about um, the policies and the practices and all, all of that. Like we're, we're, we're overturning the rock, so to speak, on campus. And we're at the early stages of that. And of course, that's not work that's gonna be done in one day or in one month or even in one academic year. But the commitment from the people that I have the honor and the privilege to speak to regularly in the meetings that I'm a part of, I'm just seeing a lot of people that are truly honestly committed to this work, even though it's hard, even though it's uncomfortable, even though many of them may not know exactly where to start or what their action can be in, in dismantling white supremacy. I see a lot of people engaging in the work. And the first thing is admitting you have a problem, right? And so um, I see a lot of people admitting that we have a problem and, and brainstorming ways to eradicate that, the, these problems and seeking um, expertise from people on campus and from people outside of campus. You know, one example is so many of our faculty and staff over the summer attended amazing workshops, like it's so many workshops and webinars about racial equity. And for the faculty in particular, many of whom were not on contract to invest that time into their own growth, knowledge, and learning is, is so incredibly helpful to me. And that's something that isn't, I'm just going to say, it's not common. I mean, I know that we have problems at Whatcom, every institution does. We're living on stolen lands, right? Our, uh, our institutions are colonial institutions. We're part of a system that has been um, the most violent system of assimilation and um, genocide. Um, outside of war. I mean, education is that and has been that. And so um, I see us all just kind of really taking this moment um, with all of the seriousness that it asks of us and doing something about that. And that gives me tremendous hope. So yes, I think Whatcom can be a leader for change. I'm just like processing everything that you just said. And it's like, whoa. Um, what is your professional call to action and how are you responding in your fear of influence as a first director for teaching and learning? I'll start with a personal story. So my daughter was about eight or nine. She was in a first or second grade and we were at Winco in Moscow, Idaho doing our, our weekly grocery shopping. I ran into a friend of mine's mom. So I know the whole family. So the mom is also my friend. But anyways, her daughter and I are like the same age. So I run into the mom and I said, and I was like, hey, how are you doing? We spent a little time catching up. I asked about her daughter and, her, and the grandkids. And she was telling me, you know, that everybody's doing good. And then she says, and Jackie, one of the granddaughters, Jackie's pregnant. And I really quick, I'm trying to do math in my head because I know that Jackie is about my son's age. And my son was about 13 or 14 at the time. I knew that she was a little bit older. And I'm like, what is she, 15, 16? And I'm like, is this a moment for congratulations or a moment where I say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I don't know. So I'm waiting for some social cue. And then she leans in and whispers with a black man's baby. And I was just gobsmacked at the time. I was like, what, wait, what, what just happened? 
And I've got my daughter holding my hand, looking up to me, like, in all seriousness with these giant brown eyes, because she realizes that something is wrong, right? That this isn't right. And I look down at her and I'm just like, I don't even know what to say in this moment. And I'm like, huh, okay, well, good to see you. And we walk away and my daughter is still holding my hand, looking up at me. And I look down at her and I said, what was, wow, what was that about? What happened? What just happened there? What was that? She knows I'm black. Like, I don't pretend I'm not. I know I'm light skinned. I know white people find me ambiguous and don't know what to make of me, but she knows I'm black. That's weird. What, what was that? So it was kind of that moment was my catalyst to really start taking this work seriously. Um, I had spent, so I'm a biracial black girl raised in white, in a white family and predominantly white communities. And I, and, you know, I come from a low socioeconomic status background. And so much of my life has just been basically struggling to survive. And so I didn't really have time to dig into the ways that racism had impacted me or untangle that. And what's more is I didn't have the language. The, the thing about our country is that um, our education system, our political system, our, our public system, nothing um, prepares us to have these conversations. So I didn't have language to think about racism. I didn't have the language to explain racism or to interrupt racism. And so in that moment with my daughter, I was left without language to describe what I was experiencing or what I had just experienced. And so that was my, my first kind of um, call to action was like, I've got to do, I've got to get better. I've got to do better at this. I've got to develop language and knowledge and strategies to interrupt these moments for my, for my kid. Right. But the, the other piece of that is, is I, you know, I was teaching, I was teaching pre-service teachers at the time. I was a graduate student teaching elementary and secondary pre-service teachers. And most of the students, I mean, if you know anything about the teaching profession, first of all, it's 82% white. Most of my students were white. Anyways, so I'm, I'm teaching these classes and I'd occasionally have a student of color and, and occasionally I'd have a student of color who couldn't afford the textbook or whatever. And, and sometimes our conversations in class would, would have undertones of racism. And again, I didn't, I wasn't really great at interrupting these moments, right? But it was for my students and um, really seeing the pain um, of, our, of my students of color and other marginalized students as their colleagues in class would discuss them and their identities in um, disparaging ways. And so the, my second leg of this journey was learning, um, and I'm still learning, of course, but learning how to interrupt these moments in the classroom with my students so as not to re-traumatize my students of color and my, and my students from other marginalized and, and underrepresented identities. So that's really been my call to action, like my kid and my students. And then, of course, you know, as I've as I've learned more, just seeing what's happening throughout the country and throughout the world around anti-Black racism, racism in general, um, and just everything. I was like, man, we've got to, like, what are, what are we leaving the next generations? Like, we already have climate catastrophe that we're all dealing with, right? Um, but we're also, like, we, we continue as, as, a, as a species, right? Humans as a species, we continue to decimate the planet and decimate one another. So um, education to me, while being one of the original most violent colonizing forces, is also a space of hope. And that's where I choose 
to choose to to ground myself in um, in this colonial enterprise as one of hope. So much to unpack, and I, I think it ties to the next question we had for you. And I'll just preface this question by saying that I think one of the things about you, Zan, that makes you so like just aspirational in the work that you do is that your call to action professionally, like you can't disentangle that from your call to action personally because it is personal. And I feel like that's important for us to touch on during this episode because. Last episode, we talked about the pandemic as a portal. We talked about how for so many of us, like this moment in time has been like this awakening to 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 racism or like this call to anti-racist work. But even to say that is such a privileged approach because for many other people, for, for people like yourselves and like that story you shared about your experience with your daughter, like this has been a part of your life for always, like not just because um, you've been in quarantine. So all of that to ask, um, and I think you kind of already answered this, but the next question was a little bit about your personal call to action. And for you, why do you work so hard um, for an anti-racist and equitable society? So my personal um, call to action is really thinking about um, what my legacy on this planet is, what my legacy for my life is. And part of my legacy is uh, probably the biggest part of my legacy is my children. If I were to die today, I would be pleased knowing that my children are good human beings and care about other human beings and are trying to do what the best that they can do for themselves and for others. Um, but beyond that, when I think about my legacy, I think about the Haudenosaunee seven generations principle. I think seven generations back, what were my people doing? Now, certainly, again, being raised in a white family, I know the most about my white family, right? And I know the struggles and the trials and the, and the tribulations that they survived leaving the countries that they left from to come over here and settle and, and do stuff. But what I'm most concerned, and I want to honor them, like I want to honor the sacrifices they made for me to be here because those those are not small. But the black side of me, I'm a descendant of slaves, of enslaved people. And the, the struggles that they experienced in order for me to be here, the struggles that they experienced and they survived in order for me to be here um, are profound. And so I owe them to me, I owe them, I have a responsibility to do the best that I can with this life that I've been given. And so I stand on their shoulders. But looking forward seven generations, I have to think about what I am leaving the next seven generations. What am I creating? What, what foundations and structures am I creating today that will help usher in my grandchildren and great-grandchildren and, and so on and so forth? And not just mine, but yours as well. What planet are we leaving them? What educational system are, are we leaving them? What political system are we leaving them? And so that's really that's my personal call to action is really thinking about the seven generations forward and backward and thinking about how my actions today affect my neighbor affect people a, a half the globe away right i'm not a world leader i don't have a ton of power i'm not able to to just flip a switch and make change for all of us but what am i doing today within my position right my professional position my um personal position, my positionality, but my work is really about um, 
equity, about racial equity and creating better structures. Um, and really, that's such a weird thing to say, creating better structures, because structures always come with barriers. So cr trying to create better, more equitable and just systems. And um, that's really where my work is at. And so that's my personal call to action. And, and what I'm doing every, every day, I try to um, call into my consciousness this question, what is my action today? What is my action today? What am I going to do today to affect change? And whether that's communicating with one person um, or communicating with a group of people that, you know, I, I try to keep that front and center. It's so amazing to hear all the different ways that you're in these spaces and like cr creating and, and practicing your anti-racist action and creating and creating spaces for conversations that really lead to the systemic changes. Um, I remember one of the most pivotal moments that I had with you that really impacted my life. Like, um, I remember back in June when we were all kind of in the fire of, you know, everything that was going on um, with the deaths of Ahmad Habri, Breonna Taylor, um, and, 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 and Tony, Tony McCade, and so much more. I remember reaching out to you and just talking to you and we talked almost until 1 or 2 a.m in the morning about you know being in spaces and how being steeped in these spaces are built on white supremacy and how you know even in that we have to care for ourselves and I remember you telling me that you know the way that we have to uplift each other when we're weary and we have to support each other when we're low um, and the very next day, you reached out to me and asked, how are you doing? How I just want to extend love and appreciation. And that meant so much. And I, re I read a quote. Um, I'm reading a book right now by Adrienne Marie Brown. Um, and she said in that, that we need to learn how to practice love such that care for ourselves and for others is understood as political resi resistance and cultivating resiliency. Um, and we just want to ask, you know, how are you practicing love and joy and care for yourself? You know, when you're having these difficult conversations and when you're in the spaces that, quite frankly, can drain the life out of you in many ways. And how can the rest of us do so? There are kind of, there are a few weird things about me. So, <laughs> and without, without getting into like, super graphic detail. First, um, I come from a life of struggle. My entire life has been struggle. I come from a dysfunctional family. My mom was a raging alcoholic growing up. I call it um, free range parenting. She was never home. So I pretty much raised my brother um, myself uh, until I was 15 when I left home. And then I, and I did a bunch of things that nobody should be doing. Uh, I'll just leave that there. The other thing is, is I was a single parent um, of two children, one of whom was a teenager running off the rails. Like he was, oh gosh. Um, and at the time, so he was, he was, my, my oldest was running off the rails. My grandmother had had a massive stroke and I was the power of attorney for her. She was in Spokane and I was in Pullman. In three months' time, I put 4,000 miles on my car going back and forth between Pullman and Spokane. So my day would go like this. I would start out the day getting the kids up and ready and off to school. And then if I had a class to teach, I would teach my class. 
And then I would buzz up to Spokane and check on my grandma and take her clean clothes, wash her hair, spend time with her, and I'd come back. On the days when I taught in the afternoon, I'd head up in the morning to see my grandma, come back, teach my class, and then I'd go back up and spend time with my grandma. And I oftentimes wasn't home until 11 o'clock at night. And so um, so during all of that time, I was basically a shut-in <laughs> because I didn't have money to go hang out with friends, um, and, I, and my life was was full and busy. So both of those things, the, the, the struggles of my life and then being a, a poor single parent graduate student um, and dealing with all of the chaos and trauma of that really um, prepared me for this moment of pandemic to just be in my home. So I'm actually like I know a lot of people are really struggling. I'm actually doing pretty good mentally and, and emotionally at the moment um, and dealing with the race talks. Um, I'm also an educator. And so as an educator, like I have a different, you know, I know, I know a lot of people are educators and really struggling in this moment and having these talks and the exhaustion of these talks. But as an educator in educational spaces, I navigate these maybe a little bit differently than some other people. And, and that probably goes back to me being steeped in white supremacy since birth, being steeped in a white family um, since birth and in predominantly white spaces. I can have conversations with a lot of people about race and racism that would probably be really hard for a lot of other people because I'm used to hearing this stuff. I've thought these things in the past. Like my thinking when I was a young adult and a teenager was very much, I wouldn't say aligned with where people are at right now, but very much aligned probably much more conservatively and much more along the lines of dismissing people's experiences and thoughts around race and racism. So I, I understand where people are coming from and I can kind of usually work to reframe those. But I also look at, at some of that resistance, not all of it, but some of that resistance as planting the seed. So this is an educational thing, right? Like, I know when I have students in my class that they're not all going to get it right away, but some of them are puzzling. They've been presented with something that now challenges what they thought they knew about the world, some idea, some belief that they've long held firmly to. And so I present them something new and they're, and they're struggling with that. And that shows up in the form of resistance um, and, and sometimes um, some level of aggression or whatever. And I see that as them struggling to make sense of these two ideas or these two ways of understanding the world and, and trying to figure out how, how what they're learning fits within what they think, right? But what I've come to understand, and, and in large part because I've had students um, several years after they've had my class come back to me and say, holy crap, I didn't think what, what we were learning in class was relevant or important, but this moment just totally, like, blew my mind because now I'm pulling, I'm, I'm pulling in what, what I was learning in your class or discussions that we would have. And so I see the work that I do as planting seeds. Some people are not necessarily ready to hear or to deeply engage with this work. So I, one, I try really hard not to take it personally. Um, and I try to present them with, I try to meet them where they're at and present them with information that they may not have already known. And I've had some pretty good success with that. That's one thing, but how I take care of myself in the moment is lately, <laughs> I mean, I started out pandemic 
with HGTV constantly on in the background, just low key running because it's soothing and calming and it's not political or anything like it's just looking at houses and remodeling houses. Right. Um, and then I got tired of that. And then it was uh, BET and I'd have, you know, living single or whatever was on at the time, low key in the background. And now I'm just like, it's music. So I'm not listening to a lot of my heavy metal. I'm a metalhead. I love Metallica. They're my number one favorite band of all time. But right now that's too rowdy for me. So I'm playing a lot of R&B, a lot of hip hop, a lot of a lot of black music. And that is um, feeding my soul and keeping my nerves calm. Er, <laughs> I should say calmer. Um, and I'm finding spaces too. I'm I, like, I, I am really fortunate that I took the time this summer to participate in spaces with um, people of color, with uh, black people. And so I'm, I'm really just taking a lot of life out of those spaces and those get togethers when, when those opportunities are there, when meeting times are um, available that don't conflict with someplace else or something else I must be doing. Um, I'm, I'm in those spaces because I need my batteries recharged and I need to see people who look like me. I need to see, um, I need to see all of the beautiful, the beautiful rainbow of people of color in my zoom room. And, um, so that, that's, what's giving me, giving me life. And of course my kids, I talk to my son, like sometimes daily, it just depends. And I talk to my daughter at least weekly, if not several times a week, she was just she just stopped by last night, so I actually got a hug, which was amazing. Um, yeah, I love your relationship with your kids, and it reminds me of um, my family lives in the same zip code, too, and I drop by their place and demand hugs frequently, so I can relate. Um, so the next question, a little bit of a different um, direction, but what do you feel like gets in your way of anti-racist action? The person squatting in the in the White House right now and his executive order. Um, so that's perhaps the first thing. A lot of people that I know doing this work across the state and their state agencies are um, like they're hearing from their AGs that any anti-racism work can undermine like, federal financial aid. So so a lot of institutions are shutting that down. Finding the space, right? Finding the spaces because like. I mean, I, I can be subversive. I can I can rename things. I can reframe things. I can do this work underground, and I'm totally willing to do that. How do we reach the folks who don't see this work as being necessary for their jobs, their relationships, um, their collegiality in in society at large? And and I'm not sure beyond having to um, being able to mandate. Um, professional development for for the an entire institution for every person who works at an institution if we're not mandating it then it's still opt in and that is i think the true barrier and when it's opt in we get the usual suspects and we don't get the people who truly need this work in the space what happens when we acknowledge race and racism at Whatcom? was there anything specific you wanted to say about that that hasn't been covered or won't be covered well you know the one thing that i would say is we can't fix a problem if we don't name a problem. We have to do that. And 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 I think that it's hard in a lot of ways because racism, at least in, on the West Coast of the state and certainly on the West Coast of the United States, racism works 
covertly versus being on the East Coast or the South where the racism is right on top of the skin, where you, you know, as a person of color, you know where you stand oftentimes with um, with people. And so we have kind of the double work because we're all polite about our racism in the, in the Pacific Northwest. This question might be related, but could take some other uh, take us in some other directions as well. You've heard us talk about Arundhati Roy and her quote about the pandemic as a portal. So if you're walking through that portal, what do you leave behind in that old world? And what do you fight for in the new one? Ooh, what do I leave behind? I mean, I don't know. So let me take this maybe a little bit different direction. As so as I mentioned, I've been through a lot of a lot of different struggles in my life. And I'll just call upon my dysfunctional relationship with my ex-husband. When we split, and for several years, I was in a lot of pain. I was very angry. I was in a lot of grief. And I was really struggling. And I was really trying to hold on to something that I never had, right? And something that I, and the illusion of what I had, I think, as I emerged from, from the moment of that intense grief and that intense rage, I became something new, kind of like, like a, a caterpillar in a cocoon, right? Like I emerged again, um, peeling back my cocoon and I was a different person than I was um, prior to that moment. And so when I think about this pandemic and I think about not just not just COVID, right, but racism and this this regressive presidential regime and and all of the the every horror show that's happening uh, around this globe. One, I know that there are better ways to go about leading um, in this world, in this country. I know that that as um, I mean, we as humans. We have created some of the most creative, disgusting ways of harming one another. We have created some of the most um, virulent forms of, of racism and white supremacy and systems that, that crush people under them. We are, humans are creative. We are innovative. If we allowed people one, to rise to their true potential, if we offered them opportunities, if we created a way for us to connect, we could, I have no doubt as humans, if we applied our innovation to, um, to inclusion, to fixing the climate, to all of these things, that we would come up with new solutions. And so as I think about surviving this pandemic, one, we have to survive this pandemic. Um, and so that's my main goal is surviving the, this COVID pandemic um, because the, the battle for um, equality will continue to rage regardless of how the election happens, regardless of what happens with pandemic. These moments of intense pain, of intense crisis, allow us to reimagine who we are and to emerge from a cocoon as something new, as something better, as something greater than what we were in the past. We have an obligation to do something about this. And so my hope is that when we emerge from this portal, that we continue to fight for equity and, and true liberation for all humans in our, in our community, in our state, in our nation, and in fact, in the world. That's my hope. Is it strange that I keep wanting to say amen every time you finish an answer? <laughs> so that's how it feels. It's good. I'm just preach Zan. I love it. But I want to go back. I want to take you back to June 10th of this year. And you and the Teaching and Learning Center, you and Todd, 
sent out an email about racial justice and everything that was happening. Then it was about two weeks, less than two weeks after George Floyd. And uh, it was just an amazing email. You dropped all kinds of knowledge and it was just, it was something. And I'm sure I wasn't the only one that emailed you as soon as they got that email and said, thank you so much for sending this. Thank you for putting these words out into our college ecosystem. But I want to read one passage that really stood out to me and then ask you about it. You wrote, you wrote, Brianna could have been one of our students in our MA program, sitting in any of our classes, being advised by any of our advisors, interacting with any of our programs. The police officers could have been our students as well. And we need to consider these two tensions, that one of our students could be a victim to police or white supremacist violence, as in Ahmaud Arbery's murder, and one of our students could be participating in acts of white violence against black indigenous people of color in the work we do with our students. Are we preparing the next Amy Cooper, the next Derek Chauvin, the next and the next? Because higher education and all of education is implicated in these moral failings. And when I read that passage, I mean, it floored me. I, I know that, I think about that, but that really just brought it to a conscious level. And I thought about how I would feel as a teacher. So I was hoping you might be able to say a little more about sending that email. I know it was four and a half months ago, but a little more about sending that email, how you felt at the time and what, if anything, has shifted for you since then. So the days leading up to this email, I was um, immersed in my grief and my sadness and despair in anger and rage. And, and I'll say, I remember the president's email coming out but days later, I didn't remember it. Somebody brought it up in a meeting and I'm like, what email? So that's, that's the, first of all, and not to, not to say um, that, that President Kathy's email wasn't, wasn't good. It was good. Um, it just didn't leave an impression on me because again, I don't think that it was, it was rooted in action and it wasn't rooted in, um, in claiming our complicity as educators at, in an educational institution. So the one, so one thing about me is I study higher education. That's my academic preparation. And so I see the landscape of higher education from a historical perspective and broadly across institution types and states. And so as I thought about this and, and I understand education as, again, I go back to it's one of, the, one of the most violent colonial forces of genocide outside of war that has been used against people of color in this country. Um, since the beginning of education. So that was that was my impetus for writing this email, for, for including links throughout the email to different sources. We have to do a better job as educators. And I know, you know, we can change Whatcom and that's one change. And back to, back to the opening, one of the opening questions or one of the first questions you asked, Whatcom can be a leader in this because we already have the structures and we're already doing so much around equity that um, that now punching it up a notch, right? Taking it to the next level is where we need to go. And as we do this, we model for the State Board of Community and Technical Colleges within all, all what, 34 of the CTCs in, in Washington. We model for the four-year institutions what they can and should be doing to support our most vulnerable and most marginalized students. Okay, so thanks for listening. We'll be back in 2021, hoping that that new year might really see some actual change. So in the meantime, keep fighting the fizzle. 
Think about what you, and yes, I mean you personally, listener, can do to create hope for humanity. Let's get to work, Whatcom. Thank you for listening to the Equity Project Podcast. This podcast is edited by me, Ben Reed, and music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. You can find more about their music at sessions.blue. As promised, we wanted to give you an opportunity to get involved with our podcasting efforts. And so we have found an easy way. Give us a call. Tell us what steps you're taking to fight the fizzle what steps you're taking to engage in anti-racist work or learn more about the equity issues facing all of us in the world today. You can give us a call at my line 360-383-3074. Again, that's 360-383-3074. And leave me a message with the details. Messages should be no longer than a minute and uh, we'll do our best to get it into a future episode no promises. Uh, We have to cut for time and things like that. But we really do want to hear from you and be able to feature your voice in this important work. So that way all of us know that we're not doing this in isolation, even while we're socially distant. Thank you.